Do you ever fantasize about listening to Hank? This is Death by DVD, and you are listening to Hank. Our month-long celebration of me continues. This episode was born out of hate and utter annoyance. Two things that I think will make for very interesting subject matter. We'll see by the end of this. So I get asked all the time, Hank, what should I watch? I don't know. I never know what to say back to that. Most of the time, I just send a link to Death by DVD, which begrudgingly I receive a sigh and or nothing at all. And I get it, you don't want an hour to two hour long ordeal that is in depth and talking about a movie, despite the fact that the convenience of just going through the list of shows we've covered might possibly be a list of movies that you could check out. Who am I to judge, you know? I, I guess that takes effort, and I understand in this day and age having a small computer in your hand all the time, every day, you just might not think of that. Do I have an attitude? I'm sorry. But still, I get this question all the time, what should I watch? That's a very hard question to answer, because, I mean, it really comes down to knowing the person, and unfortunately, I don't know everyone that well. I understand conceptually when you ask someone for something to watch. 99.9% of the time, it's you just want to kind of fade out and goof off on your phone while you smoke a bowl and don't pay attention to anything. And for our straight-edge audience, you know, of course, uh, have a bottle of water and zone out. But personally, when you ask for a movie, you ask for a suggestion, it's got to be personal. I need to know what you're into, I need to know what to avoid, I need to know what might grab you. I take it all very seriously. You gotta look at something like High Fidelity, the whole top five thing. Now, it's not top five for me, but it's the amount of obsession that is put into that, the amount of thought that's put into that, again, referencing High Fidelity, the amount of effort that's put into making a mixtape for somebody, a lot of thought, a lot of concentration, I don't just want to tell you, hey, you know what, you should watch Martyrs, because I really think that's a great movie. That could really damage some more sensitive audience members out there, and the questions that that movie asks, if the gore didn't bother you, that itself could really have some damaging effects. It's all very analytical, it's a lot of bullshit, and that's just how my brain works. You know, I'm the type of person, I just can't, I can't walk down the street, because I have to go outside. And if there's a trash can in my way, I have to look at that trash can. And how am I going to get past that trash can? And what if the neighbor two houses up has a dog? Do I have to cross the street there? Is the dog out? Are they home? And I'll spend 45 minutes wasting all of my time trying to come up with this concept of what I'm going to do. Meanwhile, some people just want to watch a goddamn movie and goof off on their phone. And that's completely acceptable. I don't mean to have an attitude. I just kind of do. I think I was born with one. Or maybe I'm just an asshole. There's a lot of things that are up in the air. We're juggling. Very small gestures apparently annoy me. Could you open the door? Hold this for me. What should I watch? Very common things. They, they just drive me crazy and become the apparent subject matter for episodes of Death by DVD. Perhaps I lied at the beginning of the show where I said hate and annoyance were going to be interesting subject matter. Maybe I'll just bitch for the next 45 minutes. Who knows? There are worse shows. I mean, not on this program. This might actually be the worst episode of Death by DVD, but in general, there are worse shows. There, there's a bunch of horrible shit compared to this. You gotta look on the bright side. Come on, just tune it back up. Don't, don't go anywhere. Stick with us. Come on. I've got a concept. I've got a whole idea. You've not let me get there yet. 
I gotta get the rambling out of the way. Trust me. But the whole idea is almost like gift giving. When you give someone a gift, it's not so much what they need. To me, in, in my head, when you give someone a gift, it's something you want them to have. So when you ask me, hey, Hollywood Hank, neighborhood friendly, world's greatest, what should I want? I want it to be a gift. I want you to see something and it be pivotal. I want it to be a piece of art. And I want you to see something and I want it to have some sort of effect. I want it to mean something to you. So I don't want to suggest something that could be either blasé, jejun, ooh, dusting off one of my favorite words I rarely get to use. Thank you, Jeremy Saulnier, for teaching me that one. Or downright offensive. Now, of course, I love offending people. I love people being offended by art. I think one of the biggest reasons art exists is to invoke emotion. One of the biggest ones that people feel when it comes to art is hatred, uh, disdain, fear. I mean, this concept led me to this episode of Death by DVD where I had to sit down and construct a list of things. This is a widespread thing. There's a lot of people. It's not just personal friends. It's people on Twitter. It's people on Instagram. It's folks on the Facebook. What should I watch? All of these things. By the way, do you follow us on Death by DVD on Instagram? Death by DVD on Twitter? Death by DVD. Big surprise. Facebook, find us, follow us, comment. Ask me to make lists that will ever so much annoy me. So now for the big unfeeling. What this whole episode is about. I attempted to take all of these things into consideration. The amount of people that have just asked honestly and innocently, Hey, can you tell me something to watch? And despite being called the world's greatest, I am a big grumpy son of a gun and never seem to play ball. Well, now I'm playing ball, I'm catching, I'm batting, I'm out in right field, I'm way deep. We're playing the whole game. Every inning Here's your fucking list. This is the show. This is the episode. Here is a list of movies that I think you should watch. Now, in general, every episode of Death by DVD, I feel, are movies that you should watch. That's why I, Alexander Nash, and myself take this time to talk about them. Not only because we have passion about film and we enjoy doing this, but the fact that there is something out of it. Every now and again, somebody will comment. Somebody will send us an email. Somebody will say, I watched this movie. In our 11 years of existing... That's been the greatest pleasure of it all, knowing that somebody else saw something out of a piece of art that I had interest in. It's the whole idea and concept that somebody could listen to I, Alexander Nash and myself, or just me, rant about something, rave about something, and get enjoyment out of it and see, not just from my angle, maybe even a new perspective for themselves, a piece of art. I mention and talk about it a lot. But film really is my favorite form of art, and I think it's lost upon people that film is art, that movies are art. And now we get back to the unveiling, the whole point of this entire episode. The list. I put some thought into it. Put a little bit of effort into it. I came up with a list of movies, various movies, art movies, exploitation movies, straight-up horror movies, foreign films, an eclectic amount. A little bit of something for everybody. So next time that you want to ask me, Hey Hank, what should I watch? And I send you an episode of my show. It's a fucking list. It's a list just for you. Alright. Hopefully there was something that we could edit out of all of that rambling for an introduction and opening monologue for this episode. God bless the 382 staff members that we have editing day and night making sure every episode of Death by DVD comes out on time. They have a ridiculously hard job. So a list. I was talking about a list. That's unfortunate because now I actually have to talk about the list. Look, look at what we've done. Look at the grave we're digging on this episode for everyone. The list begins with a movie starring... My favorite person. And if you're a longtime listener of Death by DVD, you'll know how much I've, I've always had a passion for the Paxton since childhood. I mean, I saw Aliens very, very young, and I've just always thought, you know, that's cool. That's, that's the definition of cool. Uh... Betty, man, check it out. 
I am the ultimate badass. State of the badass art. You do not want to fuck with me. We keep odd hours. Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six pack. From Private Hudson to Severin and Near Dark, I love Bill Paxton. This is one of the weirder movies from his career, which, to be completely honest, when you examine the career of Bill Paxton, all of it's really weird. He did Mortuary, Near Dark, which I just referenced. His first directorial picture, Frailty, that's a pretty bizarre movie. The second one was about golf. That seemed to be pretty normal. Boxing Helena? Maybe weird isn't the right word. Maybe weird is the normie quote-unquote word. He made a lot of art films, and he worked with a lot of what was in his heart. Bill Paxton's first film is something I'm passionate enough that I've written about, a film called Taking Tiger Mountain. Really shows where he came from, a bit of an Albert Camus kind of guy. A new age hippie? I mean, I don't know if this word salad makes sense, but Bill Paxton unfortunately is not the subject matter of this episode. The Vagrant, 1992, directed by Chris Wallace, written by Richard Jeffries. Oh yeah, I guess I forgot to mention. So, the whole list. We're gonna do the list. and take a couple seconds. Minutes. Hours. Days. Weeks. Months. Years. And talk about why you should watch this movie. Back to The Vagrant. This is a movie about a guy who buys a house. And there's a bum that just won't leave him alone. Not selling it, right? I never do. I, I never really do. This is an early 90s Paxton performance packed with absolute insanity. You've got Michael Ironside playing the detective that's out to get Bill Paxton. Lieutenant Ralph Barfus. What a great name! Why is he out to get him? I didn't even talk about that. Good going, Hank. So Paxton, playing a cat named Graham Krakowski, is convinced that this bum living in his neighborhood after he's purchased a new house just won't leave him alone. He's getting inside of the house. He's ruining his life. He's ruining his marriage. This guy's a psychopath. Bum's out to get me. You've got a clever representation. You know what? It's not even that clever. It's just really in your face. You've got a representation of capitalism and big, rich, white people that just aren't comfortable. But on the other hand, what makes this movie absolutely great is Marshall Bell, who plays the vagrant, is stalking Bill Paxton. But it's not some Lifetime movie where he finally defends his home and saves everybody. He loses his job, he loses his wife, he has to move to a trailer park in the middle of the desert, miles and miles away from his home and everything he knows for normalcy, gets accused of being a weird panty-sniffing weirdo, and lo and behold, the vagrant has been following him the entire time. Why should you watch it? Because I fucking said so and you're listening to my show. I know, that's not reasoning. That's not, that's not the, the, the reasoning. I won't do that every time. I just had to get it out of the way the first time. <laughs> Who begins a list of movies you should watch with the fucking vagrant? <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Death by DVD. I don't know if we're ever actually going to get to an uphill to, to get lower than where we're at, but... Stay tuned. I think the greatest thing about this movie is the genuine fun out of the performance that you can see Bill Paxton had doing it. And Michael Ironside is always a treasure to watch. You've got a lot of bad TV shows and sci-fi channel originals that he's appeared in. But Michael Ironside genuinely, I don't know, for about 20 years, the late 70s into the early 90s, he was on fire. He always had a really terrific performance. Why is this at the beginning of my list of movies that I feel that you should watch so people can stop asking me? Probably won't end up being the name of the episode, but that is the working title. I don't know. Maybe I just wanted to see who would stick around, and maybe I just wanted to talk about Bill Paxton for a little while. The Vagrant really is a treasure, though. It's one of those weird fever dream sort of movies for me. I have no recollection of the very first time that I saw it, but it always seems to have been there. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that makes sense. No, Hank, it doesn't. It seems like every time I reach for the remote late at night that the vagrant is one click away, and it's definitely got that vibe. This is a 4 a.m. movie. This is a baked out of your mind. Ah, I gotta put on something. The vagrant. Find it. Will the rest of the list be this invigorating? Find out soon. I guess you're gonna find out immediately now because, yeah, that's the show. Taking an extremely hard right turn from the subject matter we were just discussing is a movie called Buddies from 1985 written and directed by Arthur J. Bresson Jr. This movie is not funny. This movie should be horrifying, but at a certain angle. The angle 
is the humanity of all of us, the humanity of, of, of every single person on this earth and their judgment. There are so many concepts of what is wrong and right. There are so many rules. There are so many imposed things like cannibalism. You shouldn't eat other people. That's wrong, right? Rape. You shouldn't rape. That's wrong, right? What about judgment? What about things that you even pass in your own mind? Where do these things morph and turn into hate? Now, my meaning and my point behind this is that at every turn, there is always an extreme. Let's look at American politics. You have the right wing and you have the left wing. At some point, you have the extreme right and then you have the extreme left. All of these things are a circle, as life and time is. They all meet in the middle. The extreme right and the extreme left, eventually, their ideologies clash because they become the exact same thing, but from other standing points, like two people looking at a valley on a mountain trying to describe it with a sunset in the background. I know. <laughs> I'm reaching so bad, but I'm trying to paint a picture with this concept. The grass is always greener? Shit. I could've... Damn it. Should've just said that. That... That would've... Whole, that, that, that's pretty much the concept here. This film is about a homosexual man who decides to become a buddy for another gay man dying of AIDS. But the difference in their lives are just the valley. Two people trying to look over cliffs at this valley in the middle. I mean, you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Do you know what the Grand Canyon is? Google the Grand Canyon. Check that out real quick and then come back. And imagine being on one side of it and somebody being on the other side of it and both of you trying to text each other what you're seeing, because it's going to be absolutely different. Sometimes you have common interests with people. Sometimes you have things that you just think make the world, make a, a relationship, make identity. And it's not true, because it's just masks. Everything, I mean, God, we did American Psycho a few weeks ago. Let's go back to that and go back to Patrick Bateman. That beautiful scene where he is peeling off the face mask just to reveal pretty much another mask that there is no face under it. It's a very, pun intended, skin-deep idea, and people have, in general, concepts that that's what is relationships. The concept with buddies jumps into that pool. You've got a politically charged gay man. Somebody in his mind is, is hip. Somebody who is understanding of the plight of being a gay man in the 80s. Somebody who is going out of their way to help other gay men. He's a buddy. A buddy is somebody who volunteers and is pretty much a bedside companion of somebody dying in the hospital of AIDS. So it's a Christ-like act almost. And that's our lead in this film. Somebody who goes into this situation expecting to almost be thanked for what they're doing and they realize a whole different world, a whole different perspective, a whole different point of view, hoping my rant a little bit before this kind of now ties into, oh, well, that makes sense why you were rambling about all that stuff. The man our lead is taking care of is a radical, somebody who defiantly stood against a system. It's a very Abby Hoffman-type character. It's a very in-your-face, you-have-to-know-why-you're-wrong sort of character. There isn't a lot of acceptance. There isn't a lot of beauty. There's a lot of hate, there's a lot of regret, there's a lot of sorrow. Especially coming off something like The Vagrant. Wow, way to punch me in the dick, Hank. You can find this film and get a really great addition from it from Vinegar Syndrome, but I think what gives it a unique sentiment is the fact that it is absolute emotion and pain on, on film. It is a subject matter that is so serious and horrifying, but overlooked and joked about regularly. AIDS jokes are just as disgusting as saying China virus. This movie walks a very dangerous path that I think most modern audiences don't want to deal with. Looking back, on one hand, at how awful we treated people and how we really judged people that way. They must shoot dope or they're gay. There were so many awful, bigoted, just, just evil stereotypes when it came down to something that was destroying our country and nobody cared. The relationships and character development that is shown to you inside of this movie are immaculate, and I think they're incredibly powerful. This isn't some mainstream representation of generic white people just getting along. You have a development of different cultures, different ideas, different societies melding and mixing together, but initially, one person thought they were the same simply defined by their sexuality. The subject matter is infinitely interesting. You can find this and get yourself a great copy from Vinegar Syndrome, Buddies, 1985. Oh, God, why did I think this was a good idea? The next movie on our list is by Mark 
Carroll and Jean-Pierre Jeanette. The brilliant minds that brought us Alien Resurrection. The best way that I could describe this movie is is it takes place in a Tom Waits universe. The entire look, the feel, the vibe, the the characters, the the costuming. It it just all feels like it came out of a weird drunken nightmare that Tom Waits had in 1978. Delicatessen, 1991. Now I was just making fun of Alien Resurrection, but this film stars Dominique Pignon who's probably one of the favorite characters out of Alien Resurrection. Personally, I'm a big fan of Christy, and everybody loves Ron Perlman. I think I might have accidentally come up with a really good theme with all of these movies. This movie could also be in a similar universe to something like Rollerball, because it is the dying glimpses and breaths of capitalism. It's a very bitter black comedy about a landlord who has an apartment building. Every now and again... They eat some of the people inside of it. You don't have a definition of what the world is like. Somewhat reminiscent to Richard Stanley's hardware, you're just injected into this universe. You're just forced into where you're at. You understand right off the bat that getting a job is very important. Having any means of a home is very important. Holy shit, it sounds like America right now. If you don't have even a cent to your name, you'll probably die. Hope to God you don't get the cold or some weird pain in your wrist. You might end up dying. So our lead, played by Dominique Pignon, finds himself a job at this hotel. Now, of course, we as the audience know that it's run by a cannibal. But you kind of have to have some sort of sympathy inside of this universe. How do people survive? How do the children survive? That's always the big thing. What about the children? What are we going to do about the children? Well, sometimes you gotta feed them man meat. Excuse me? A baking powder? And that's... that's life. That's the universe. Our lead, while doing his daily duties, falls in love with our cannibalistic landlord's daughter. Trouble and hilarity ensues. It's almost a Jerry Lewis approach to cannibalism. I mean, it's really hysterical. You've got a lot of body comedy, you've got a lot of Jerry Lewis comedy. Hence why I referenced it. It's situational, but it's very surreal, and the message overall is something I think that might end up being pounded into your head by the end of the night. Loving people. Love in general. Love. That's the answer to almost everything. Delicatessen 1991. Find it, see it, check it out. And with our next movie, not only do we take a hard turn, we drive into a ditch and then hit a tree and then the car explodes and everybody burns to death. Now, I don't like to advocate drugs, alcohol, violence, or insanity to anybody, but they've always worked for me. This next movie is one of my favorite films about drugs, and unconventional favorite films about drugs. I'm sick and tired of everybody telling me, Requiem for a Dream, it's the best drug movie. That's just glorifying shooting dope. Did you not see the end? Ass to ass. And then Leto gets his fucking arm cut off. Okay, do you want a movie that actually might make meth look fun? It's not this one. That's The Salton Sea. Go check that one out. That makes meth look a little appealing. Probably should cut that out of the show. We're talking about Spun from 2002, directed by Jonas Ackerland. God damn if this movie isn't one of the most batshit insane things. But it's like a Keith Haring painting. There's just so much action going on from absolutely every direction, everywhere you can look. And then you have just a, the greatest ensemble cast. Jason Schwartzman, Brittany Murphy, John Leguizamo, Patrick Fugit, Mickey Rourke, Mina Suvari. One of my favorite roles, even though it's like six seconds, from Eric Roberts, Josh Peck, and the ultimately talented Peter Stormare. This movie's all about meth. It's not an episode of Live PD in Pasco County. Ultimately, the story doesn't matter, but you've got Jason Schwartzman playing a guy named Ross who needs to get some meth. The things you'll do to get drugs. Keeping up with our theme of the night, humanity. There's all sorts of things. There's love, there's loss, there's hate, there's pain. You can look at the last two movies, then you can look at this one. Spun, I think, is an incredible definition of the brutal honesty, the brutal honest portrayal, rather, of humankind. We're not very smart. 
I mean, and entirely, we're not very smart as, as a people. You ever looked at those studies where they'll, like, put sugar in front of an ant, and of course the ant that has sugar will get twice as much done? Well, imagine how that would be when you just smoke meth. I mean, do you know what meth is? Should we do a history lesson of what meth is? Methadrine was first distilled by a Japanese scientist before World War II. Handed to the Japanese, they knew a good thing when they saw it. By some estimates, 2% of the Japanese population had a meth problem after the war. Factory workers, soldiers, pilots. Maybe that's why it took two bombs to get him to surrender. A nuclear blast is just a minor nuisance to a determined tweaker. In the 50s, the housewives got a hold of it. Dexedrine, benzedrine, methadrine. Now that's a classic speed freak for you. Skinny and cleaning house. I bet her poor husband never knew what hit him in the sack either. There were even rumors that one of our presidents dabbled with mysterious energy shots. Imagine that, a slammer in the White House. If it's true, I bet old Khrushchev never got a word in edgewise. By the late 60s, the government finally cracked down and sent the whole thing underground. Bikers control the market for a while. But now, anyone with a basic chemistry kit and the right ingredients can cook it up at home. Ever see a long-haired, tattooed freak buying up all the cold medicine he can lay his hands on at three in the morning? Take it from me, he doesn't have a cold. He's a cook. Look in his kitchen and you'll find a whole grocery list of unsavory ingredients. Drain cleaner, hydrochloric acid, match heads for red phosphorus, ether, and of course, the cold medicine. So what you have with Spun is a character study of people addicted to that, people that have made their entire life that, people that shoot it, smoke it, and snort it, and then you've got the cook. Our man, Mickey Rourke. All right, look for videos. You got uh, blonde chicks, long hair, big titties, and small asses. And the small ass, man, that takes a priority. Unless the tits are perfect. If the tits are perfect, then we, uh, we go with tits. This one's got bonus seeds. Ooh, 112 girls, 522 penetrations. Chinese guys with used cocks, chicks with dicks. Hey, that's a fucking video. <laughs> Trying to put this movie into a box and telling you what it's about, like I'm Roger Ebert isn't gonna do anything. Spun is an experience to be had on your own. Those of you that still live by the Ian MacKay school of straight edge, I salute you. But those of you that indulge, this is one of those movies that maybe you shouldn't do it while you watch it. <laughs> And I know, that's usually, that's not an inebriation dedication. What are you talking about, Hank? It's very surreal and it's almost upsetting to the extent that uh, while you're watching this movie, I personally almost get lost in the insanity of what's going on and the behavior of these characters is so upsetting that under the influence of mind-altering substances, you could totally freak out. I will say one of my favorite scenes of this movie is when John Leguizamo sits down and shoots up a fat ball of meth. You can look at something like The Pest and laugh at him, but the intensity behind his performance is just balls through the wall. Everybody! Schwartzman! Oh, God. You know, last week I was talking about children shouldn't play with dead things. Jason Schwartzman character, Ross, he's one of those Allen types, just... Some of the actions, so he has to go score some meth, right? He's got a stripper girlfriend in his hotel room. They've been having some wild, kinky sex, and she's chained to the wall. He just puts some tape over her eyes and mouth and leaves her for days because he's got to go score. He's working for a cook. Ugh. All right. Spending a lot of time on Spun. 2002. Find it. Check it out. If any of my babbling or rambling was coherent in the least bit, it's a very emotional movie, and it is a wonderful portrayal of just how insane addiction in general can make you. The focus point shouldn't be meth. It should be human nature in general. Love can make you act this way. Alcohol can make you act this way. Meth can make you act this way. Jerking off can make you act... Well, I guess that's love. You could just love jerking off. You get the concept. Eating. All sorts of things. It's like Hellraiser. You know, there are all these levels of concepts of sin that you can really indulge in and not really have a concept in. Holy shit, that's a movie! Seven by David Fincher! 
That's a fucking movie. You should watch Seven by David Fincher. But it's not the next film on the list. Because the next film on the list is Purple Noon from 1960. Adapted and directed by René Clement, based on the book by Patricia Highsmith, this is the first film translation of the Ripley novels, the Tom Ripley novels. The very first being The Talented Mr. Ripley, then Ripley Underground, Ripley's Game, The Boy Who Followed Ripley, Ripley Underwater. Film-wise, you've got Purple Noon, starring Elaine Delon, somebody I love, sex symbol Elaine Delon. He's like the French James Dean, but he didn't get brutally mangled in a car accident. He's still kicking. And still pretty handsome. Then you've got The American Friend starring Dennis Hopper by Wim Wenders. The Talented Mr. Ripley starring Matt Damon. And then Ripley's Game with Barry Pepper. Did I leave out anything? I don't know. Who cares? So novel-wise, you've got a sociopathic serial killer who travels around the world almost like a James Bond. It's like a very... Hey, there we go. It's really like James Bond, but he's he's a horrible murderer. An abusive, misogynistic, horrible, sociopathic serial killer. It's like a billionaire version of Ted Bundy. Uh, like Elon Musk, but handsome. Because in this movie, it's played by Elaine Delon, who's incredibly handsome and didn't have to pay a great deal of money for hair plugs. Which seems like a petty thing to make fun of somebody over, but it's Elon Musk and he can suck my whole ass. Why you should watch this movie is because it's exceptionally beautiful. Most of it takes place on the sea, and for one, you've got gorgeous boats, you've got gorgeous photography of the ocean. Elaine Delon, I don't care what your sexuality is. This dude is the pinnacle of handsome. He's fucking great looking. But overall, the performance is even something so simply translated with text, being able to sit and read the English version, there is an immense amount of devious, sensual nature to all of it. And of course, every one of the movie is incredibly attractive. And this is one of those eras of French nouveau film that it's just beautiful. Everyone's beautiful. It's all dreamlike. It's all very surreal technicolor. Although I think the film is devastatingly beautiful to witness and to watch, I don't particularly care for the portrayal of Tom Ripley. Elaine Delon is wonderful, the performance is wonderful, but you almost have a, a sympathy. Sympathy with a character I reference to be somebody like Ted Bundy. You really shouldn't have a lot of sympathy for it. He's an evil murderer in some of the acts that he commits within the film. You really shouldn't be able to be like, ah, oh, well, I can understand. But by the end of this, especially with what happens in the very last few seconds, you feel bad for Tom. Out of everyone, you end up rooting for the very bad guy. That is the direction of the movie, but that too is the direction of Patricia Highsmith's novels. He's the hero. So it, uh, I think I aptly really kind of put this together with James Bond. He is the anti-James Bond. A very beautiful, sexy murderer of everyone. It's not just women. He just likes to kill. And he gets away with it. You know what? This will be a combo. Let's add in Wim Wenders, the American friend. This time, you've got Dennis Hopper playing the role. And this was during one of the wildest eras of Hopper's life. But he manages to have an incredibly controlled performance. It's one of the highlights of Dennis Hopper's career for myself. And I'm a big fan. I, again, I was talking about Bill Paxson at the beginning of the show. You want to list out heroes, people that really mean the world to me? Dennis Hopper. I, I, I love Dennis Hopper. But I'm also very, very able to admit when he was absolutely shitty. I'm not going to sit here and talk about that Crow movie he made like it was any good. Space Truckers? I don't know. I'll defend that. It's Stuart Gordon, okay? I'll, I'll fight for Stuart Gordon. In this essence, you have Hopper understanding the character, the subject matter. It's frightening. It's controlled. It's beautiful. One of the things I really enjoy about this film is the fact that it's in German, but almost all of Hopper's dialogue is in English, but everyone seems to understand him. But they always respond in German, like he understands. So it gives this very uh, weird, dreamlike sequence, almost like you feel senile watching the entire experience. And then finally, the end is so tumultuous, it's like, what? The emotions are incredibly powerful. But I think that's a trademark of Wim Wenders, something like Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire. The end of the movie is just painful. I mean, he really takes a little bit from the Italians, guys like Fellini, when it is kicking you in the balls with the finale of the movie. The American Friend, 1977. We had 13 movies because, you know, death by DVD. It's horror. It's scary. Ooh, it's ooky spooky. 13. But I guess we're up to 14 now. Following up with a movie that, hey, guess what? The exact same subject matter, Elevator to the Gallows, 1958. Directed by Louis Moll. 
This movie's about this cat who's going to kill his girlfriend's husband, who also happens to be his boss. And then, after committing the murder and everything seemingly goes well, he gets stuck in the elevator. This movie comes from 1958, but it has the tension, the suspense, the fear of something like Dario Argento. It, it's, it's one of those, I wouldn't say a proto-Giallo movie, but where you can definitely see the tension, suspense, and the motivation behind some of the mid to late 70s Italian productions, especially from dudes like Dario Argento. It's filmed like an American noir picture. Everybody smokes, the blacks are very, very heavy, the shadows are very, very deep, everyone's wearing long coats, everyone's dressed in suits. It's almost sultry. The environment is so tension-packed and sultry that by the end of the movie, it's just like an anxiety attack, and that's one of the things I truly appreciate about it. But the direction of photography is, is just gorgeous. But anything from the 50s, 60s, and France, you've got like a 90% chance of being really great, right? I mean, that's some shit they tell you in film school. But I don't know. Again, with our theme that's sticking with us the entire night, it, it honestly wasn't intentional. Or was it? Capitalism at large is what destroys society. Now, of course, you can argue that society is based on something like capitalism. People deserve lower paychecks because they don't have enough skill. Shouldn't we live in a society that actually provides people with skills so they can learn and earn a livable wage? Oh, no. No, no, no. That's communism. Elevated to the gallows is a guy killing his boss, one, because he wants freedom of love, and two, he's just tired of answering to the fucking man, and they have a very big elaborate plan here. I know this is like the third time I've tried to say we should abolish capitalism by means of murder. I am not an advocate of any form of retaliatory violence, but a lot more has to be done than tearing down statues. Alright, let's move on. Moving on to a movie from 1973 directed by a gentleman named Guerdon Trueblood, The Candy Snatchers. Three batshit insane criminals kidnap an heiress that they assume is going to settle their lives, let them move out to a beautiful island and never have to worry about pain, sorrow, or trouble ever again. Lo and behold, that's just not how it goes. They bury her alive in a coffin. They go to her father, who they find out from has been hoping she would die for years and years and years so he could collect her millions and millions. Like all the other movies we've discussed tonight, we've got quite the tango. Everything is very deceptive. All of these films are masked like one thing, but turn out to be something else. The Candy Snatchers is another film that you can find from Vinegar Syndrome. It's not a horror film, but I'm definitely not bold enough to say something ignorant like, It's a thriller. Do you ever wonder why people spend so much time focusing on things like capitalism and how evil it is. The whole point of this movie is people going out of their way to harm the rich. It's almost Robin Hood-esque, but in the sense Robin Hood is kind of like the sociopaths from Last House on the Left. You've got a very unique coupling of characters. you got one rando and then a brother and sister. The brother who the entire movie just seems to focus and derive pleasure from being an awful person, even to the extent of bragging and talking several times about his kill count, how many people he's physically harmed and removed from our world. But each time he talks about it, it's completely different because he's bullshit. It's all masturbatorial. It's all a power struggle. The entire essence of the Candy Snatchers is a power struggle where nobody actually has power. You've got this mute autistic child who lives down the road. He's found candy buried Oh, that's our lead. That, that's what's clever about it. You've got a little bit of a dirty title, The Candy Snatchers, but the girl that gets kidnapped, her name's Candy. So she was snatched. Yeah, see? Put that drum roll in there. So this child can't speak, he can't communicate, but every day he walks and he finds candy. How does this movie end? Oh boy, it will leave you with a big bunch in your bridges. Incredibly shocking ending to a shocking movie. Everything that you're almost forced to witness with the Candy Snatchers, I think, is like the tenacity and the point Tarantino wanted to have with, like, Jackie Brown. The whole movie has a very cruel and harsh and fast-paced feel to it, but it just comes off lackluster. It comes off like playing tennis with yourself, just throwing a ball against the wall. The Candy Snatchers manages to have that real essence Tarantino tries to replicate. It has the feeling that he keeps trying to 
make his movies horrifying with. This is the sort of thing that when people write and talk about that scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where they're at Spawn Ranch and it's so horrifying and Tarantino definitely needs to make a horror movie, what they mean is the vibe and the emotion he ripped off from the Candy Snatchers. That's what they mean. Find the Candy Snatchers. Watch it. See it. Don't forget it. You can get it from Vinegar Syndrome. Check it out. Moving on to the next movie on the list. <laughs> Why did I pick this? <laughs> oh, God. So the point of this episode it was going to be quick, and I was just going to do a list of movies. And then I pick Mikey and Nikki from 1976, written and directed by Elaine May, which is hard to believe because this is the only Cassavetes movie that Cassavetes didn't do. But, man, it, it, it just is him. This, out of even his own films, this is where I'm going to get excited and just start ranting about stuff. Out of his own motion pictures, things like Gloria, things like Husbands, this is the definitive Cassavetes movie. Not only does it star John Cassavetes, it stars his best friend and confidant, Peter Falk, somebody I hold incredibly close to my heart. You know what? If I could be anybody, I'd be Columbo. Wouldn't it be great? To be able to have all the answers that Columbo has, that's who I'd be. Lieutenant Columbo. Ned Beatty, M. Emmett Walsh, Joyce Van Patten, William Hickey. You got a great cast in this movie, but the direction, the point, it's just angst. It's sticking with everything I've presented with you tonight. Now, this whole theme of capitalism, we could really take this into the ninth direction and get really hardcore into it. But the beautiful thing about Mikey and Nikki is the extenuation and the pain. This is some Shakespearean shit. The concept of this movie is pain and love. Have you ever loved somebody with all of your heart? Have they ever been everything? You're everything. Your world. Has your entire existence ever circled and been committed to the thought of somebody else every waking single aching moment? And they betray you? Or they hurt you? Or things move on? It doesn't matter. We don't need a goddamn backstory. You know what I'm saying? Things move on. Things change. Something that was your entire heart no longer is until that entire feeling is cold and stone and bitter and all you want is pain. This is what we're dealing with here. That we're dealing with somebody that's incredibly hurt and broken and doesn't know how to handle things. It's a mob story. You can take it into aspects of dumb bullshit like Goodfellas, and you can look at it as sort of a dark mafia movie, but I think that's truly the wrong perspective that you should have for something like this. John Cassavetes himself it makes me sick in this film. There are so many things that I can relate to from him. He plays a character named Nicky. Peter Falk, he plays a character named Mikey. There's so many things that I can relate to from him. I almost see a yin and yang of hatred and self-angst. What makes this movie beautiful is the duality of both of these character actors who were very, very close personal friends able to work together. One of the interesting factoids when it comes to this film is Peter Falk had to beg Cassavetes to just be normal. Now, there are a lot of wild stories when it comes to my man Cassavetes. Most of them are all true, but Falk saw something in this, and I think he saw the humanity of Cassavetes, a very... A, a, a man who had a very hard time being a man. Maybe I'm being a little bit poetic here, but I think Cassavetes was somewhat like Kafka. I don't think he ever saw himself as he felt he was. We're waxing poetic. But Mikey and Nikki really leads into that subject because you get to see exposed to people their pain, their suffering. You get to see at the core fucking beautiful acting. The, the point of this being included on this episode is the immaculate ability between Cassavetes and Falk. It's extravagant. It's beautiful. I keep saying it. I mean, I, I will move on. But there's a lesson to be learned connecting all of these things together. An unintentional theme. Perhaps I hate creating lists, but maybe I'm good at it. There is something to the entire length of all of this. Now, there's no way I could do a list of movies that you have to see without including George A. Romero. Someone that we talk about regularly on this show. I've spoken about heroes tonight. Here's another one, George Romero. George is a different type of hero for me. The style of his art isn't so much what caught my eye, but the message. George is one of the first times that I realized a horror movie could have a much deeper message than tits and someone's head being blown off. George Romero is somebody that I think taught me for the first time about equal values and 
social economics, all of these things that are very, very present in his work, such as Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead, the holy trinity of zombie films. But that's not what we're talking about. Jack's Wife, a.k.a. Season of the Witch, 1972, written and directed by George. This movie is about a neglected, unhappy, bored wife. Uh, she's tired of her duties. She's tired of being subjective to uh, you just cook and clean. This movie explores something that is really relevant right now, but people forget history. Where we're living at right now, it's like, well, what do you mean black lives matter? All lives matter. Such a narrow-minded, dumbass perspective. You live in a world where people are almost hunted. You live in a world where people are subjected to hate all day, every day. You live in a world where people are treated differently because of their skin color. But it's not that way anymore. There was a law passed sometime, right? They can drink from the same water fountains. A clueless society, pretty much American history. And that's where we get into Jack's wife, because that really is the subject matter. All the cocktail parties, all the cheese platters, all the hobnobbing with rich people. What does that do when it's not a part of your life? You're just putting your thumb up. Okay, honey, everything's great, I guess, while I slave away. You've got to realize independence, and you've got to take the concept of slavery and look at what that actually stands for. Now, this is touchy. And subject matter that i got to tread carefully with. But... Let's go there. You conceptually marry someone with this idea of them really being your slave. A lot of people do that. Not everyone does that, but you're going to cook. You're going to clean for me. You're going to be a housewife. And that's where we're revolving at. That's the universe of Season of the Witch, a.k.a. Jack's wife. A housewife who has realized that she is a slave, that she is stuck to these concepts that aren't even her own, that she is living through somebody else's identity because that's what her husband wants her to be, so she starts dabbling in some witchcraft. The movie fits with this whole subject matter tonight because of the ending, because of the ending that I would say is traditionally George Romero, Night of the Living Dead. What happens to Ben? Originally, in Dawn of the Dead, Fly Girl was supposed to die. But outside of two people, love, happiness, a whole structure of utopia and society crushed because of the downfall of what other people? You move into Day of the Dead, the exact same thing, but it's internal. Absolutely everything with George Romero had a theme. Well, uh, okay. Again, goddammit. Arms starting to hurt because I'm reaching. Not everything monkey shines. It had... Uh, I'm supposed to be making a reference to something that won't benefit my argument. Then I made a reference to something that actually puts my argument stronger. I gotta stop. I'm digging my own grave here because everything, really, Ramiro did ugh, Creepshow. That's that's the one, if anything. I mean, there's some subtle hints back and forth with his concept, but, I mean, I think that was a project and a pet piece with him and uh, Stephen King. So, monkey shines. That's incredibly charged with uh, the entire message. The philosophy of George Romero is wide and very, very deep. There is a very stone-cold fact to it, though. You can come up with any coined phrase you want to, but George was a leftist. He was a communist. He was a liberal. Watch Day of the Dead. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't know if I'm selling these movies at all, but damn it if this isn't a show. All right, I've got to take a step back here. I'm looking at the next movie, and I'm laughing a little bit. I didn't mean for all of this to have an overwhelming connecting theme. I got this book, you dig? I write every movie that I see down inside of this book. So when this concept of hate and annoyance came forth and I created the idea of this show, I figured, you know what, I'll just run through my book, find a couple titles, we'll talk about them. I sat and I looked from January 1st of last year to November of this year, and everything I came up with was random. I picked titles that were enticing to me. I picked things that I thought I could talk about. I picked things that, to be honest, I figured, hey, they're entertaining. It'll make a show. But we really have a theme. We really have something that is connecting all of these together. And if you look at the deeper lining message, if you watch these movies, if you humor my message and you sit down and you take my goddamn list and you watch the movies... I think there's something beautiful that's connecting out of all of them, and it wasn't intentional. Something that I will credit to, hey, I, I gotta come up with a show. It's Hank Month. I gotta come up with a show, because we're celebrating me, right? It's Thanksgiving. The whole thing this month is all Hank. But I'm not celebrating, because I have to do all the work. I'm doing the show, and I'm coming up with this. So, Thanksgiving is a gift to you. Just like my whole idea of when you... <sighs> 
give somebody a gift. It's something you want them to have. I want you to have this list. I want you to see these movies. We've come full circle, and we're still not at the end. God damn it, because that would be great. We could just do the whole ashtrays full and the bottles empty and just end. Ah, son of a bitch. But we still got to keep on trucking, and where we're going is the 60s again. 1960, Peeping Tom. Written and adapted for the screen by Leo Marx, directed by Michael Powell. This movie is a quintessential must-see for the giallo horror fan. Horror fans in general, the concept behind this one, the concept behind this one is a dude who murders women, just like every giallo movie. But what makes things really interesting is the fact that he only kills them with his camera. His whole point behind doing this is to get their dying expression on film. Now there's a beautiful concept. There's something that we can really drive home, the expression, the fear, the utmost perfection behind these performances. Something that even when you look at the horror fandom, the absolute insanity sometimes that you can witness even on forums, just the hatred, the bizarre emotion when you might accidentally say Jess Franco kind of sucks and people just go crazy and threaten to kill you and burn down your entire fucking house. Now that's a euphemism because we could also apply this to politics, but for the most an important thing here is the application of the abuse of women. That's the entire driving point here is just this man's obsession and his murderous intent. It's sort of a proto-giallo in that sense. It's not a faceless black glove killer, but it's somebody that you become familiar with. When I was discussing Purple Noon, I mentioned how it was uncomfortable to feel almost a heroicism for Elaine Delon's character, Tom Ripley. Peeping Tom has a very similar feeling. Carl Bohm, playing Mark Lewis, is a very eccentric and murderous, evil person. But this entire story is presented through his jaded outlook, his hatred, his misogynistic view, and also his obsession and, and his utmost need for perfection. His obsession with film is only clutching to the idea that he has no control of his own life. This is a 1960 murder mystery that borders on exploitation. It's filthy. It's horny, it's sleazy, it's greasy. It's filled with women being stabbed in the chest with a camera. The murder weapon is a camera. For a giallo aficionado, it's a wet dream. But in general, it's beautifully shot and it's a terrific movie to follow. Another theme with this entire show is the fact that all of these movies... They don't have the ending you particularly want out of a film. You know, when like you're watching... The never-ending story and he rides away on Falcor and everything's happy. Nothing like that happens in any of these films. Let's move on. 1975, a picture by Peter Weir, a movie that I added to this list explicitly because it's fucking pretty. I think it's really, really pretty. And I wanted to talk about the movie being, guess what? Pretty. Based on a novel by Joan Lindsay. Screenplay by Cliff Green. Picnic at Hanging Rock. I believe in the last few years this was remade as like a TV miniseries for Australian television. This is the definitive movie. So in the early part of the 20th century, this all-girls school goes to a picnic at a place called Hanging Rock in Melbourne. Several of them disappear and the rest of the movie is a fever dream experience attempting to connect what has happened. All of this based on a novel and historic evidence of a crime that possibly did commit people did go missing and there is no solution to what happened there are many ideas is it aliens was it god is this rock some aboriginal place where high spirits could meet that's what i think is one of the most unique things when it comes to this movie because all of these questions are never answered but they're all mixed and melded together you have a very spiritual feeling you have a very horror feeling you don't know what's happening you're fearing for the lives of some of these characters and there's nothing that's really established you just know that People are struggling. You have to have that idea of wrong and right. You have to have that idea of worry of, of people that can't take care of themselves. You have to look at yourself again in a society where if everyone could be able to take care of themselves, things would be ideal and perfect. But we've got some girls that are going to a school to learn etiquette that are released into the wild Australian outback. Because carrying books on top of your head and learning which fork is the appropriate one to use for salad was the necessary thing, supposedly, to teach people. But that again is a question onto our society as to why there are demeaning aspects, why there are people of quote-unquote sub-levels, why 
Women are treated this way. White people of color are treated another way. I'm white and I've never seen that happen. All these arguments that you can see constantly happening. All these subjective levels of society. God damn it. I didn't even think this one really fit in, but when you break it down, especially because as you get through the movie, you go through this level of people lying, people talking to the police, people trying to figure out where these girls disappeared, and it's, it's, it's just contemptuous because it's constantly people trying to have attention. It's people trying to exist in uh, woe and sorrow. But you have this very hazy, milky, Vaseline camera look to it. It's, it's very floating white garb. I like to put on the record Juju by Susie and the Banshees and put this movie on and kind of pair them up. It's just got that feeling to it. It's floating and it's free. There doesn't seem to be a specific reality to this movie. Picnic on Hanging Rock, 1975. Did I do a good job selling this? I, I don't know. I don't think I've done a good job selling any of them. But we're going to move on. Oh my God, we're on the last one. The last film. And now we move on to a movie that I probably should have discussed at the very beginning of the show. Now that I've had 3 to 14 drinks, I don't have the confidence to pronounce this director's name as well as I would have. Directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. And here's the hard part. Written by... F...them... 2,000 years later. F...themes... Philippu? It's Dogtooth. So, I saw Kaneta from 2005 and was shocked. I was devastated. It, there was an amount of loneliness but beauty that was portrayed on film. Dogtooth centers around isolation. Most of the time when you think you're isolated, you just think you're away from people. But imagine being away from culture. Imagine being away from your culture or things that you are understanding of. Imagine being dropped in another country where you can't speak the language and you have no clue of what they do, how they live, how they make it through their days. These things are important and these things are learned from behavior. It's almost animalistic. You learn how to act around other people from being around other people. So when that's taken away from you, what happens? That's the story of Dogtooth, because you have three teens who are living isolated completely because of the decisions that their parents have decided to make, that they do not want their children to be around society. They want to raise their children on their own spectrum, which is absolutely psychotic once you get into the idea of what they're teaching their children to be or, or, or what they're showing their children to do. Like every goddamn thing on this list, it's a deeply humanistic story exposing the brutal nature of what most people care about, the protection of their family, and we have to keep our race moving. We just can't die. This weird incessant need, and it's like this concept. People have this pride of where they're from. I'm going to reach here a little bit and take from George Carlin. He said this better. Pride cometh before the fall. That's from Proverbs. He didn't say that. I'm sorry. That's from some guy like 300 years after Jesus died that wrote it down and now it's obsessed by a bunch of people and there's wars. George Carlin had this entire thing about nationalism and I think there's nothing more true to what he said. You have an incessant need to crave and identify with this false amount of pride. Nothing you've done something that is inconsequential to your entire life. The false idea of pride is where the structural identity of hate begins. It's like a virus. It's like an infection. Once it slowly creeps in, then everyone starts having this false sense of pride. Shouldn't pride be invoked for sense of achievement? Shouldn't you have done something to have pride? With Dogtooth, you've got this familial unit that decides their pride. Their idea of their concept of society is so holy that no one else can partake in it that they have now taken their three children and turned them into... Spoiler alert, incestuous monsters that are sociopaths because they have no idea what to deal with. They have no idea how to even communicate and, and interact with other people. Everything that was presented to you tonight, weirdly enough, was an incredibly deep and vast look into, I mean, I guess we can just say how awful American life is. We are, I'm an American, hence we, the greatest country in the world. We have the greatest military. We have the greatest everything. So why should we have to make America great again? Wasn't it great the whole time? The whole concept. I don't know. 
Seems like it was all founded and based on people struggling for power and never being able to come up with ideas to live with themselves. Here's something to leave you with. A final film. I was talking about Elaine Delon and Purple Noon. He made a film in 1976 directed by Joseph Losey called Mr. Klein. It's a story of mistaken identity, but the way the movie ends is one of the most tragic things I've ever seen. It's a man so consumed with his identity. It's a man so consumed with his self-righteous nature. It's a man so lost that he doesn't know who he is that he will travel literally to the depths of hell to uncover his own identity. And that's the society we live in. No one knows who they are. Have you ever had the chance? Have you ever been given the opportunity to know who you are? You've just worked your entire life because that's what you've been told to do. You've been forced to... Slave away your years of creativity, life, lust, happiness, because you'll die. You can't get medication. You can't get food. We live in a society that we don't even have water. Somehow, some way, people sit and they think it's completely acceptable. We charge for water. You have to buy it. Something that fucking comes from the sky. I hope with all of these films, I at least made you ask questions made you look at something differently. And I hope deeply you stop asking me for a list of movies to watch. Because here it is. The ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. We'll see you next week. On the next episode of Death by DVD... What if you found a portal to a parallel universe? What if you could slide into a thousand different worlds? Where it's the same year, and you're the same person, but everything else is different. And what if you can't find your way home? Traveling between different Earths and parallel universes via a vortex-like wormhole activated by a handheld timer device, Hank, the world's greatest, is a slider. While the slide technology was intended to return him to his home universe, the premature use of the device to escape a dangerous situation has caused the timer to lose track of the coordinates to Hank's universe. Now, he is forced to slide between worlds, spending anywhere from minutes to months there, waiting for the timer to count down to the next slide, hoping it will take him home. Failing to use the slide at that point would mean he'd be stuck in the universe for nearly three decades until the vortex opens up again. Find out what happens on the next episode of Slide Er uh, Death by DVD. It sounds a lot like sliders, though. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. You have been listening to Death by DVD. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. Oh, you know I take the pussy seriously. Let me tell you, you gotta take the pussy seriously. I mean, there's a priority for a tight ass. But if it's hairy, I go for the tits. But if the tits are hairy... Hey, it's right back to the pussy. But you gotta speak to that pussy, son. You don't really talk to it, you make a vow to it. Now, no nation has ever been so ready to seize the power and the freedom of the pussy as our own. And we must all care for that pussy. Today, we do more than just celebrate the pussy. We rededicate ourselves to the very idea of pussy. I mean, friends, that's not what the pussy can do for you. But what can you do for the pussy?